Welcome to Secret Skin on the Infinite Guest Network, distributed by American Public Media, produced and edited by the Platform Collection, recorded in a closet by me. This is like the third time My podcast theme doesn't have no word And this podcast is called Super Skin That's an abstraction of Super Skin by Bus Driver Not this real skin, but the name of one of his songs This podcast is called Super Skin This podcast is also not called a podcast Yeah, yeah also got another name that is called the Secret Radio Hour. Sometimes to some people that I don't want to say secret skin to, I think. Other than that, I believe in quantum physics, so no name is static and accurate. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning. My name is Michael Eagle, also known as Open Mike Eagle. Welcome back to Secret Skin. I say welcome back because I know you definitely were just listening like definitely like you had just uh reheard the last episode the year in wrap up with milo for the uh thousandth and 27th time right now and you were uh excited to start the new one so welcome back this particular intro is for you over devoted listener i'm tired uh did a lot today I drove to long beach twice the second time i saw a couple whales and dolphins It's been a long day. Um, we got a lot to get through here. Um, Today's episode of Secret Skin features an interview with uh, W. Kamau Bell. It's really, really, really good. He's very forthcoming about the year he had last year and um, basically his whole life leading up to that. It's really good. So listen to it after I talk a lot. I need to tell you some things. If you live in Los Angeles, the Hellfire Club, my collection of rap brethren that I belong to, is uh, premiering our movie this Thursday at CineFamily. So it's Thursday, January 15th. Our movie that we made when we were on tour last year is called Chewing, and we're premiering it at CineFamily, and it's going to be beat sets from the homies, and I'm going to record it, and it might end up being an episode of Secret Skin. I'm not sure yet. Speaking of recording episodes of Secret Skin, in Minneapolis, I'm sorry, in St. Paul, the other twin city, January 30th, into this month, the very first official live Secret Skin podcast episode featuring Carnage, Psalm 1, Abby Wolf, and comedian Brandy Brown. I've been writing a lot of ridiculous, random, absurd things for that show, so I'm really looking forward to sharing that. It's going to be kind of a mixture of uh, the in-depth conversation you've gotten used to here, plus like bits and stuff and ways to deal with the crowd and have fun with them. And uh, yeah, it'll be a good time. So um, I'll say the mix of it's going to be a mix of what you've become accustomed to here, plus. A little bit of what I was doing in my variety show, the Mike Eagle show that I've done in uh, L.A. a couple of times, New York a couple of times, in Seattle, um, 
and in Atlanta. Oh, there was that one time in San Francisco, too, that didn't go very well. Yeah. It's a tour story for another time. Anyway, speaking of tour stories, if you live in Columbia, Missouri, Dallas, Austin, Houston, New Orleans, Atlanta, Durham, Philly, D.C., Providence, Cambridge, New York, Ann Arbor, Chicago, or Madison, Wisconsin, I will be on tour in your area in February with the Doomtree crew. If you live in Omaha, Fort Collins, Inglewood, Colorado, Salt Lake City, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, L.A., Pomona, Phoenix, or Albuquerque, I'll be on tour around those ways, also with Doomtree and also with Hellfire Club. So um, live one of those places, and if you don't move there immediately, you still have time. When I did leave you in that year-end episode, there was this matter of naming you the Secret Skin listener. I put out a call in that episode for people to email their suggestions for names, and I got a bunch of really cool ones. And um, I'm, I was going to tell you which one I chose right now. And I decided not to. Um, it's a secret. It's a secret skin. Some things should be secret. Or maybe I should make you work for it somehow. Give me some cereal box tops. And then you have to figure out a decoder ring. And then inside of it will be your name. And um, so that's where it landed. I'm not going to talk about that right now. I'll give you a hint, though. The Simpsons. But in that same episode where I gave out my email address so people can give suggestions on what they think the name of people who listen to the podcast should be. I also said you could send in questions for the show. And one guy, my buddy Hut, who's a rapper out of Austin, uh, wrote me a question. And when I read it in the email, I thought it was so good that I asked him to record himself saying it to me so that I can put it into the show. You touched on this a bit with POS, but could you please speak a bit more on aging independent rappers? Despite never reaching superstardom, some of these people seem to steadily move forward both stylistically and, sometimes, career-wise. Is there any precedent for that? How long do you think it will last? I'm mostly thinking of musicians like Brother Ali, Slug, Aesop Rock, Bus Driver, Dose One, Jean Grey, LP, all of whom are approaching 40. There are, of course, others. They all flourished within the turn of the Millennium Underground, which, you and Blockhead have pointed out, has now died. That era had a very particular kind of ethos or skill set that seems to have left a real mark on this generation of artists and impacted their longevity. Also, what are you guys going to do after rap? Do you believe in life after rap? Are there other musical or entertainment avenues you see open for yourself and others? Or might the broad skill set you've developed in service of rap find meaningful application elsewhere? So yeah, when he wrote it, I read it, I loved it, I said, hey you, record that, and then I heard it, then I decided that I hate that question. I hate it. I hate it. It's too long, first of all. In parts of it, he sounds like he's rapping. I don't like that for some reason. Like, don't rap a question at me. Don't do that. And then it also makes me and all my friends feel like we are 1,000 years old. Hut, I love you. I grew to hate the question. So this is how I decided to answer it. What are you guys going to do after rap? Do you believe in life after rap? What are you guys going to do after rap? Do you believe in life after rap? What are you guys going to do after rap? Do you believe in life after rap? What 
what are you guys gonna do after rap? You believe in life after rap? What are you guys gonna do after rap? Die. You believe in life after rap? No. What are you guys gonna do after rap? Die. You believe in life after rap? No. What are you guys gonna do after rap? Die. You believe in life after rap? No. What are you guys gonna do after rap? Die. You believe in life after Nope. What are you guys gonna do after rap? You believe the mother so send all your questions to ombebooking at gmail.com uh, if I like them. Or actually record them. You get a gold star for recording them. Hutch, you get a gold star. Bing. I'm going to play them on air. Um, if I like them, I'll answer them. If I don't like them, maybe I'll find a way to answer them. You can just write them in, too. I really am interested in seeing what you guys think about the show, about life, about rap music, about comedy, about secrets. I have many secrets. I am secrets in a human costume. That's who I am. I'm telling you. That's my biggest secret reveal that I am not a person. I am secrets. Where do we go from here? Show's over. Show's not over. I'm about to play my interview with Kamal Bell, who was amazing. It was an honor to sit down with him. I was a big fan of his work. And, um, yeah, it's great. He talks about stuff a lot. And it's noisy because I'm still recording my interviews in the field. In the field. I'm a field recording general. And I spent the entire interview asking him questions in this manner. I should have. I should go back and like dub that in. So, Kamal, where did you grow up? Yeah, I asked her where I grew up. I asked everybody where they grew up. Sorry, I'm interested. Anyway, check out my interview with Kamal Bell. Check out a tour date. Check out a rap show. I might be dropping some new music soon, too. Okay, this is Secret Skin. There's a secret radio hour, and this is it. Uh, we did one. We did hadn't done one in a while because I was doing uh, a TV show. Yeah, and then we did one right after the show ended, and then it's just his schedule. His yard schedule. And my schedule. Well, really, it was at that point. It was his schedule and my crippling depression. Yikes! <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> We're two things that couldn't. We couldn't align his schedule with my with my bouts of rising up. No, well, we were there already. Yeah, like, let me let yeah, me set yeah, the yeah. table. Uh, we're here talking with with W. Kamal Bell. We were talking about the podcast that you do with uh, with Vernon Reed. Yeah. And uh, when was the last time you guys did one? I mean, I, it was. Maybe it was earlier. Maybe it was January. I don't know. It's been months. For a minute, they were they were not weekly, but they were we were doing them regularly enough before Dolly Bias, and he was not on tour with Living Color. They were regularly enough that people could expect when y'all was kind of unemployed. Yeah, we were unemployed. Yeah, and you know, Negroes can't stay unemployed for too long. And then the show happened, and just sort of that 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 sort of scorched the earth for everything in my life. Yeah, the show. Yeah, and you know, husbanding, parenting. Now, before we get to crippling depression, because I, I don't, I do not want to forget that at all. Yeah, um, yeah. I did. But let's. <laughs> I mean, well, well, 
Let me ask you this. Are I mean, you, let me say, I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm, I don't want anybody to think that I'm making fun of crippling depression. No. That's the word I'm putting on it. I, I don't, I'm not trying to. I, well, I, 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 don't I, have a di- I don't have a diagnosis. <laughs> I would, but I would assume that you genuinely felt that or you oh, wouldn't yeah. have said it, yeah, you know, yeah, even yeah. if it was just for two weeks. Yeah, like, yeah, it was, no. yeah, and was, so I'm assuming that's after the show got canceled? Well, or, it's funny. I haven't talked about this straight up. Uh, no, it was during. <laughs> really? Like the process of doing the show became at some point like, like, uh, like we started doing daily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, you know, it was like Sisyphean, rolling the rock up the hill, watching the rock roll down the hill, rolling the rock up the hill, and not feeling like because we never got into a groove that the rock ever rolled itself, or that, right. or that, or that you were like, you could step away from the rock and the rock would sort of, you know, there was just, the, and I'd say we as a staff. Yeah, so we you guys sort of, all just had to have hands on it yeah, all the time. And, and if somebody sneezed, suddenly you were like, the rock would roll down the hill and you'd look at, why were you sneezing? <laughs> <laughs> like, why are you going to sneeze like that? So it just was a thing where there was a, it was a, you know, and I've talked to other people about it, you know, other people. That would have worked in TV? That worked in TV, okay. and you know, I've, I've uh, Lori Kilmartin is a friend of mine. She works on Conan. Has okay. for years, and you know, uh, I talked to I talked to John Oliver right before he got his show. Okay. Uh, well, no, he had the show before it aired when right. he had just gotten it, and he just was wanted to talk about making well, stuff. Yeah, making stuff. What? And he had just gone through the whole thing with. Uh, he was a correspondent on the Daily Show, mm-hmm. and then he took it over for six weeks. And so he had, he was like basically like when he, he got to see the other side of it. Right. And so he said there was all this time he when he was a correspondent, like why isn't John doing Stewart blah blah blah? Why isn't John Stewart blah? And then he had the host job for six weeks. He was like, oh, <laughs> that's why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like so. And we had a good talk about that. And he was just like, you know, he just wanted to knowing that I had just gone through the show thing and and wanted to know if I had any thoughts or what my thoughts were. And you know, uh, clearly. He he was a good student because the show's yeah. going well. <laughs> nah, but he's a, his is weekly, though, like, right? His is weekly. And, he, and, that, and that's that, the thing he said is that he was, there was never, after doing the Daily Show and after having done six weeks hosting, he doesn't, he don't want to do Daily. Right. And I, I don't know if HBO wanted that. I don't know if they're prepared for that. But certainly, what you find is, uh, in, in that kind of format, that sort of topical format, very quickly they go, well, if you can do it weekly, you can do it daily because they can get more content. And so that's the thing. It's like they don't... They go, okay, weekly show, great. Uh, Daily show, okay, you know what I mean? But I think that they, I think they were, they were, uh, yeah. I know, it sounds like, to people listening, it probably sounds like something bad is happening. No, but it's not. It's just just, exuberance. It's just more um, younger people, Mm -hmm. is what it is. An addition of younger people. Yeah, they're louder and more exuberant than... They're uh, excited about life. Excited. We're talking about crippling depression. Yeah, we're talking about crippling depression and career-ending uh, <laughs> opportunities. Well, when you first... Where'd you grow up, first of all? Um, that's always a hard question. All over, but... Okay. I, would, uh, I mean, like I was... I graduated from high school in Chicago, so for a long time, I would say I was from Chicago, but then I lived out here for so long, I was like, you know, I think I'm from here now. Uh, but I was born in Palo Alto... Lived in Indiana- Indianapolis as a oh kid. Oh my God, Indianapolis! Yeah. What was that like? <laughs> well, luckily I was a little kid, but oh I certainly don't. I certainly don't go back often. My mom is from there, and so Indianapolis was my grandmother's house. That's all it really was. And then after she died, it was like, well, there's no reason to, you know. And I have a lot of cousins who live there who are, you know, a lot of family. But my mother and my sister and my um, nephew. They live in Gary, Indiana. Oh yeah. Oh, Indiana is a state. It's just, it's like the secretly, it's secret. It's like secret Florida. Like people, <laughs> people think Florida is the worst state. <laughs> but Indianapolis, 
Indiana. We're under the radar, Florida. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's it's a uh, it's it's secret Florida. It's and, and my mom lives there in Bloomington, and I you know I, I went out there a few months ago and did a show, and uh, you know it's Bloomington's very proud of itself. It's like Bloomington is the most liberal city in Indiana. Right. All right. That's not for me. <laughs> so it's a uh, you know it's not it's not a place that I like I you know, yeah I, I mean for me the thing about Indianapolis is people call uh, it's nickname is Naptown right you know and they call it that themselves like it's you know they it's, do. A, it's a sleepy place well no thank you <laughs> right. and yet they think they're one convention center away from being Chicago it's one of those cities where they feel like if we just build one more 5,000 seat arena we will be Chicago Illinois so how long did you spend in Chicago actually um I was there I got there my, my mom lives in Boston I was with my mom most of my life mm-hmm. we lived in we lived in Boston she got fed up with Boston, as my mom is known to do. Get fed up with things. That's one of her hobbies. <laughs> Getting fed up. And so we, uh, Harold Washington had just become the mayor of Chicago, and she just sort of. That's my mom. I want to go where a black man runs things. <laughs> what is your mom? Is she still? Uh, is she still alive? Yeah, yeah. She's in, what, she lives in Bloomington, Indiana. Actually. Okay, she's still there. And, and um, yeah. what did she? What did she do? She uh, at that point she was a textbook editor, but then when she moved to like she was, you know, uh, English textbook editor for a textbook company. Uh, and she at that point we moved to Chicago. She was self-employed and she started publishing, self-publishing her own books of black quotations. That's amazing. A black what? Black quotations. Really? Yeah, it's called famous black quotations because there were no compendiums of black people. Quotes. So your environment you're raised in is already very like. Socially, culturally aware. Yeah, yeah, and, and and in ways that I that at the time was annoying to me as a kid. You know, it's, what was annoying about it? You know, because I had the mom. We tra- we moved her a lot, so we would move to a new to a new town, or I'd move to a new school, and she would show up to school and be like, "Do you teach black history here?" And they'd be like, "No." She's like, "Well, you do now. I'll be here on Thursday." You know, she was like, she'd bring in a slide projector. She was an involved right. mom, and her other mom involvement was like baking cookies and you know cheering. Fields at soccer games. My mom's involvement was uh, teaching about Africa and <laughs> and starting a, a black teacher council or a, or a black wow. parents council. So she was just like traveling around, starting institutions yes. wherever, wherever they needed to have. Yeah, yeah. And she was just she was a, a shit disturber, you know. So. And as a kid, that's annoying because, like I said, I, as a kid, I wanted the mom who knew how to bake, and my mom does, is very probably does not know how to bake. So you were there uh, in high school? Was uh, it just for high school, or was it before high school? Well, I got there in seventh grade, okay. and then we. I hated it because I had I was upset about the fact we moved from Boston, so I then went, went and lived with my dad in Alabama, where he always had lived. Wow, so yeah. it was Alabama. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, you know. Uh, and my mom's like, "Well, you're was it at least Birmingham?" No, it's Mobile. Oh my God. Which is again, Mobile is like they think they're one convention center away from being Atlanta. So wow. I, I've, I've spent time in these in these cities that have chips on their shoulders. <laughs> so I was in Alabama for two and a half years. Okay. Then sophomore year, I went back to Chicago, right before sophomore, year, I went back to Chicago God. and went to. Lab and then was at Lab for the rest of high school. Then went to college in Pennsylvania, uh, Philadelphia, UPenn for a year and a half. Dropped the hell out of that school and then went back to Chicago and lived there for. I guess I lived there for like five years until I moved to the Bay Area. So what is what were you doing when you dropped out? Uh, at that point, I was watching. I remember I was thinking about this the other day. I remember dropping out and uh, again suffering through some crippling depression and uh, and in bed watching L.A. burn down. Mm. <laughs> 
that was that's how I spent my I like the like the Rodney King thing happened right around that time in the in the in the riot and everything. As we're being in bed watching uh, L.A. Burns. <laughs> so when, when does when when does comedy start to become a thing? I mean, have you have you started? Have you done any comedy up until this com- point? I mean, I mean, not no. I mean, were you were you interested in comedy? That's been, comedy had always been a thing. Okay. I, my mom always said that when I was a little kid that I would do anything she asked me to do if she said I could stay up and watch Saturday Night Live. Right. Like I would just whatever clean the right. get, cut the yeah move the yeah nice. If I so comedy and, and, was, and this is this is just on like the new Saturday episodes. Are you like watching the reruns and stuff? Too? No, this like, new, this okay. is the late. I would she would let me stay up and watch. I had the, I was an only child. I had that kind of mom. She would let me right. stay up and watch Saturday Night Live. If I did everything else, yeah. so I was always a fan. I mean, I you know I'm old enough to remember Eddie Murphy on Saturday Night Live, you know, and so I and he was like. You know, he seemed like he was the same age as me, you know, because he was like 19 right. and I was a kid, so I was like, yeah. it's like, it's like my older brother. Instead of being Gumby, like, yeah. Gumby? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even though I didn't know what Gumby was, because he was pulling an old reference, but uh, Eddie Murphy Raw, I saw the movie theater, you know, and I remember it laugh, people were laughing so loud, you couldn't hear the next joke, <laughs> and I just remember being angry, but also overwhelmed by the yeah. power, and... So comedy was always there. I was a comedy nerd before that was a thing, right? And before it was easy to be, you know. You know, and honestly, that's I've, I've always felt that about myself, just in, in how intensely and attentively I've like it consumed the comedy mm-hmm. all of my life. Like, and it was kind of that kind of thing with me too. An only child, and given all television options, I'm always trying to find something funny. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, and if yeah. there was a stand-up show on, I was just loving it. I just yeah. love hearing like different people's interpretations yeah, of the yeah. world. I mean, I sort of feel like I always said, I'm the generation that ruined the comedy clubs because it was on TV and I didn't know you were supposed to go to a comedy club. I didn't go to a comedy club until after I probably started doing comedy. Right. I mean, I was young. So this was like when the boom ended, I guess. Yeah, I was, I mean, I sort of watched the boom go up and then by the time I started doing comedy, the boom had come down. Right. That's, that's, that's like me and rap music. Like, I started doing <laughs> rap music when there's like officially zero money left yeah, in rap exactly. music. Yeah, yeah. Like, all of my homies have started like four years before me. Like, yeah, they used to get, you know, 30 grand three times a year. Yeah. Yeah, get out of bed. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. no, it's, you know. I've spent many nights in the club listening to people talk about the, the you know, back when I was younger and comedy the old days. Of like, you could you could make a thousand dollars a week just opening. Yeah, 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 <laughs> you could have yeah, yeah. Get ten minutes of material. I remember a guy told me that you could just they he was doing a club somewhere in the middle of the country, and all they had to do to sell out the club was was put on the thing from L.A. and his name from L.A. was enough. Be like, he's from L.A. <laughs> oh, he's from L.A. <laughs> like that's all. That's the only credit. Now you oh, have like headliners with credits a mile long. Yeah. Every late night talk show, mm-hmm. guest appearances in movies, and it's like they're giving away tickets. So when when did, when was the first time you got up and uh, what did you, did you start an open mic? Or open what? mic, yeah, it was a coffee shop in Chicago called the No Exit Cafe. Where is it at? Rogers Park. It's, okay. not, it's not there anymore unless they reopened it, but yeah, it was closed. Uh, it's a coffee shop in Chicago, No Exit Cafe. I was 21. Uh, but you had to pay, I think you had to pay 99 cents to perform. Uh, you had to pay 99 cents to Yeah, perform. because they knew you were going to buy anything. Good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so even though they're providing, yeah, they, you're providing the entertainment. No, but you're not because nobody's paying attention. Because back then, this is pre-laptops, people were all, like the only people in the coffee shop were people who were like like old men playing chess. Right. You know, so I, was, you know, I remember yeah. that old Hyde Park business. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Just guys out there playing chess. So yeah, so it was just, uh, well, this was Rogers Park, but same thing. Right. Uh, but... 
you know, there was no, you weren't, they were sort of providing a service, as I think they felt like we were providing a service. You get to go in there and for five minutes, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But also, we don't lose money on the video. <laughs> so, um, and so what was that first experience like? I had, I had, when I, sort of the thing that got me out of bed was my mom signed me up for class at Second City. Mm-hmm. So she, because, you know, she was like, Second City, that's where Saturday Night Live people come from. So I'm going to, so she signed me up. Not so, without I mean, me knowing, but just well, told me I'm going to sign you up. I, but that's something you would communicate an interest in yes, yes. professionally okay. yeah like it was just I just didn't know well there's two things I didn't know now it's so much different if you're someone who wants, has interest in starting comedy this is true of everything you just go how do I start comedy right, on your right, computer right. and Google exactly. tells you and exactly. you go oh I gotta it's very laid out but there was no path to the basket at that point right. that was laid out so she, we were in Chicago Second City was there We that had been talked about enough so mm-hmm. she knew oh Second City is where famous people come from and Saturday Night Live people come from so I signed you up for their like you know three hour classes and I was like okay and I did improv for about a year and a half Hmm. and in the middle of that year and a half I realized no I want to do stand up so you're in Chicago starting you Second City, and then you start to do stand-up at the, what's, what's the place called again? No Exit Cafe. Now, did you start just open micing there a lot? Yeah, it was like, I mean, in Chicago, this, this was, again, after the boom, so there wasn't a lot of comedy opportunity in the city. There was So at that point, it was like you'd go to that coffee shop, and people go, where's another open mic? And they go, there's one on Wednesday. Okay, right. And everybody would just go to that. And then, where's the, I think there's a guy starting to think on Thursday. All right. And so you just sort of... Like nomads, the 15 or 20 comedians who were sort of starting at that point would just sort of wander around. But there wasn't like, it's not that New York thing where the moment you start, people go, okay, after you finish this set, go across town. Mm-hmm. After you finish this set, go across town. Then go then go upstairs, then go back downstairs. Right. Where it's like you're, in New York, if you're not doing three sets a night, you're look, you're like really a hobbyist. You know, right. like you're, or if right. you're not trying to, or if you're not, if you're not trying to get, whereas in Chicago, if you got three sets a week at that point, that was the that was the circuit. And then, how long did you stay in Chicago before you moved to the Bay? Uh, I was there. So this is the, so I was there for three years. Ninety seven, I moved to the Bay, and I felt like like I, I always had this thing. I was like, I need to check in every year. I need to check in on my progress. And this has been this way to this day. Like I just feel like, am I better than I was last year? How do you have I gotten more opportunity? And not even money is always a great measure of that. Right. But if I measure money, then I'm way worse this year than right. last year. <laughs> way worse. Right. Way, and that's not true. It's just You're right. you know. But so it's always been about do I feel like I'm, my bits are better, my right. writing's better, I'm just at the craft, better, like. At the craft and at the you know opportunities the craft is leading to. exactly you know, certainly things so yeah so you you don't want to get let, let the craft get better but you're taking on worse opportunities yeah or somehow well. I'm like yeah but you're still playing the same circuit you right. have to push yourself to go well, I got to go do something else projects I'm taking on things I'm creating but really the craft is where it starts and so like the third year I was in town I was like I re- I think I repeated the second year like okay. I uh, first year second first from year now this is zero in Chicago one. this is in Chicago okay. year zero to one I was like oh my god that's better zero one to year two hey I got better year two to three. I ain't getting mad. <laughs> now, I knew that was on me. There was, I was always sort of uh, figuring out. I read Richard Pryor's book right early on, dude. His book had just come out, Prior Convictions. Okay. I read it. I think I read it too early. And it was always about your voice. Right. And so I was always more focused on my voice than I was on, do you want to do, do you want to, like, I know comics who, two weeks into comedy, they'll be like, do you want to headline this gig? They'll be like, I'll figure it out. <laughs> so, like, there's something, there's a lot to be said about that. Right. Because sometimes, put, throwing yourself in the deep end is how you learn how to swim. It's getting the, getting the information that comes from that experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was always like, no, I was always wary of taking opportunities too soon. Right. Which definitely slowed me down. But also, 
I just didn't want to. I know that I've seen this happen too. People throw themselves in the deep end and they keep themselves in the deep end, and eventually they think they're swimming, but they're just they're sort of just flailing. Yeah, yeah, they're just, just sloppy <laughs> dog paddle that's keeping right. them afloat. I'm alive. Yeah, I'm alive. Yeah. So it's like they've been for five years. They're doing that. They're headlining clubs, and then they come to do some sort of showcase or some sort of thing for LA or Montreal or Comedy Central, and they do their seven minute set, and 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 they maybe they kill, right. maybe they destroy, but it's all just sort of like that's not you. Right. You you develop an act from the audience telling you what is funny right. instead of you telling instead the audience what is funny. So no voice at all. No voice at all. Yeah, so it's just, like just bits that work but nothing. Yeah. Whether it's hacked bits where it's like that seems stolen or that's just a very generic premise that right. you're using that right. everybody has used. But there's no sense of like who this person is. And right. sometimes those guys kill because yeah. people respond to those things that are sort of generic. And, and accessible and in, accessible, in that yeah. way. You know. Uh, and uh, so I just was always very apparent aware of like not wanting to do that and treating myself artisanally. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I'm not any better. And I was like, I need to get to a city that has more opportunity where you don't go up three times a week. And if you have one bad set, the whole week is bad. So why didn't you go to New York? I, I, I visited I, I visited two places, New York and San Francisco. Okay. I went to New York, visited a friend of mine, Rob Parvonian, who still lives there. Great, great comedian, musical comedian, uh, plays guitar. Uh, and he let me stay at his place. And it was just, New York was just too much. It was just, forget... The comedy scene. I got just, up, just life, just, just, just ah! getting out of the way. <laughs> yeah, it's just like you walk outside, just like oh god. <laughs> like yeah, it just feels like it just felt like I couldn't. I was. It's funny. I like big cities. I like Chicago, but New York was too much. And then I went to San. Came to San Francisco. Pace was slower. Monday, this is sort of kismet, as uh, as our people say, the black yeah. people say. Uh, Monday night, I went to see. We, I think we got there Saturday, me and my girlfriend at the time, at the time. Uh, we got there on Friday. I saw a comedy show at Cobb's Comedy Club. Uh, maybe it was Saturday, anyway, it doesn't matter. But it was just, it was three comedians. It was Jake Johansson, who's mm. one of the great stand-ups of all time. Incredible. Like, people don't know. Incredible. Like, he's a guy I watched on TV growing up. Yeah, and I still, yeah. I just love to hear him on podcast. He's, he's insane. He's, he's <laughs> Jake is, and I just worked with him at the, uh, at the Kilkenny uh, Comedy Festival. And Jake, is, and you play comedy festivals overseas, and even though we all speak the same language, the references aren't the same. So I was up there, I was up there dog paddling a little mm-hmm. bit, like, and and I had all my sets were, were good to okay, or like I had a couple good ones, really good ones, but I was very like consciously like can't do that bit, move right. it around, da 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 da. And I've heard American comedians go over there and just eat it because you just you sort of go up there like, hey, you guys know what's happening on, you know, whatever Cinemax, oh, right? Yeah, Cinemax. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, wait, let me change subjects. Hey, you guys know what's happening on Breaking Bad? Oh, I didn't get here yet. Okay. <laughs> you don't want to spoil nothing? Let me move yeah, right yeah, along. Yeah. So, you know? And so comics would go up there, and, and so I was very aware that I'd done overseas a little bit enough to be, to work hard to do it. But Jake was up there effortlessly yeah. killing. Just like, cause, and a lot of it is that his subject matter, but he also just is a vet. Yeah. And there's just, that dude knows what's to do. So who else was on that show? You said Jake Johansson? Jake Johansson, Gene Pompa. Who uh, I don't know him. He's a he's an LA guy, he, but he spent a lot of time in San Francisco. And for me, Gene Pompa was like, he's been on the A list. <laughs> <laughs> so that's this is where my right, brain right. is. Like, Premium blend. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is, he was on the A list. <laughs> so he's famous. He's definitely famous. Jake, I've seen on TV a bunch of mm-hmm. times. Gene Pompa's definitely famous. This is where my brain was. And this guy, Tony Kameen, who was a local legend. And okay. still is a local. He doesn't live anymore. It's like he married to a woman who writes for a community. But that's a whole other subject. But anyway, he, and he was like a local guy who I came to the show. It was like one of the, one of the tent poles of the local scene at that point. And it was like this, 
it was the best comedy show I'd ever seen because I'd been seeing shows in Chicago at coffee shops and da da da. Or I'd go to Zanies and it would be like a showcase night. And I'd seen Marin, but I'm just saying from front to end, yeah. like everybody doing their thing. Right. And afterwards, I went up to Gene Pompa and was like, like you're famous. <laughs> I've seen you on the A list. And Gene, of course, was like, oh, I, you know, I'm thinking he's famous. He's like, this guy knows I was on the A list. <laughs> and I said, he's like, I was like, I'm a comedian and I was trying to think. But it's like, here's what you do: call the punchline. Uh, is that that is a uh, what is the punchline? Punchline is the club in San Francisco. Okay. It's, it, that I mean, it's the it's the number. It's the punchline and Cobbs. At that point, they were owned by different people. Now they're all owned by the same multinational corporation. Really? As you do, yeah. As you do. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, but the people who work the club are great people. Right. But they're owned by multiple whatever. So, so at that point, he's like, call the punchline, which has been here for thirty years. It's like where, uh, like one of the young Jake Johansson's young comedian special was taped at the oh, punchline. Oh wow. So I'd seen it on TV. So he was like, call the punchline. Tell them that uh, you talked to Gene Pompa and ask them for a guest. Gene Pompa recommends you for a guest set. Mm-hmm. And so Gene recommends me for a guest set, having never seen me do anything. That's amazing. And later, I, after knowing Gene later for a while, I realized he's a nut. He just says, he's, just, yeah. like, he's, a, he's a lovable guy. But he, he also would, like, he would enjoy the chaos of that. He just, or, well, he just sort of like, he doesn't, he just kind of was like, yeah, do it. I don't care if it goes badly. Right. <laughs> I want a guy to get, if you want to get up, you think I'm funny? I like you think I'm funny? I'm not worried about my name. Or like, <laughs> he's just sort of like, he's just cool. So uh, I called the punchline. I said, Gene told me. They gave me a guess at, and this is the thing I later learned, they, that doesn't happen. You know, a comic can't call, I don't know what sort of things came together, but that you can't just call the punchline and go, with sight unseen and go, give me a guess at without like, who's your agent? Who's your manager? Right. What's your TV credits? And I, and I got a guess set on like a Saturday, Friday or Saturday show. What, you what, what year is this? 97. 97. Summer of 97. And I got a, it was in the show Sue Murphy, who was a local legend who now writes, I think she writes for Ellen DeGeneres' show. Uh, Carlos Osrocki, who became known later for being the voice of the Taco Bell dog. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Rocco's Modern World. He's a, and oh, Reno yeah, 911. Okay. Carlos okay. is a, he's a, he's legit. Uh, but it, he was definitely the voice of the Taco Bell dog. And this guy, Tony, Tony Dianco, who was a local guy who was, that was his first opening week and we became friends when I moved here. But it was, again, it was a great show. You know, I did it, I had a good set. I don't know why. The jokes I did there, I wouldn't do right now if you put a gun to my head. <laughs> I, like, I, don't, I don't think I remember those jokes. And it's like, this is what, four years into the career? Three years. Three years. So, voice-wise, you, you, you were always concentrating on having a voice. So, voice-wise, were you on the way to where you would end it up? Was, I would say that it was like a, a hastily thrown together gift basket. I see. <laughs> it, was not, it was not like, well, this cheese matches up with this fruit. It was like, it was unsophisticated. It was, it was, it was, it was like a bad hotel mini bar. It's got Eminem. Got a Snickers bar. Yeah, got a Snickers bar. Got a, yeah, got a, got a, a Diet Coke. Uh, got a, with a Diet Coke with lime, even though they don't sell that anymore. Got some alkaline water. Right. Water, yeah. Got nail clippers in the refrigerator. I don't know. That's weird. Uh, but it yeah. works. Trust yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're good, but they just, you know, we couldn't figure out another place to put them. Yeah. Got uh, a, a baby toothbrush. You know, like, it was just, it was a badly, so... Like, there's bits in there that I look back and go, okay, I might write about that subject still. And right. there's things in there I was like, I would never even... There was, like, for example, there's a bit about... There's bits about racism, but it's not at any level of, like, interesting... Like, it's about... Not, like, you know, why are there no black 
the one with Dukes of Hazzard. <laughs> you know, like whatever, whatever. It's that. And I, well, and I, and I want to ask you that too. Like when you started, was race already a prominent part of your material, or did that kind of develop later? That de- it was always in there somewhere, but it wasn't a problem because I think it was just in my experience and my mom and right growing up environment. But I was just trying to be funny. Right. So you know, my big closer for a while was a sex joke. You know, really? which is, a, and I say a sex joke because it was just a sex, it wasn't about anything. Right. It was, just a, it was a sex joke. Uh, so and that was my that was the one big joke I had that I knew no matter how bad the set went that that was going to be the, mm-hmm. the one that'll take us home. Right. And right now I would never do that joke again unless there was some con- like sometimes I write jokes now where I'm like that's funny but I need a context for it. Right. Because otherwise it just doesn't. It's not going to be funny. I won't find it funny in a month. Right. So I need to. What is the what is the the context that makes this relevant? Because to me, for me now. So yeah, but back then I wasn't looking for relevancy. I was just yeah. looking for just straight up straight up punchlines. Yeah, like straight laughing. up premises and punchlines. Yeah. People laughing. And so every joke's too long, and you know there's too many words. And how long did it take you to start to establish yourself out here? Uh, let's see. This is now my memory's all. So it's '97. I think I was out here two years before I finally worked. I got work at the punchline. Okay. So that's five years into comedy, which was a long time because people now will get work two or three years in. Right. And even back then, we'll get, but I just sort of I had to start over. Right. So I didn't feel, it didn't feel like a long time. It just felt like I was going. I felt like I was seeing progress again every year. Like, well, and I mean, I was working other smaller clubs, and so I felt like I was getting work. I wasn't making a living, mm-hmm. but because you can't make a living opening. But I did my first week at the punchline in Sacramento. And all the people, and the thing, I hung around the club a lot. I would help out. Every now and again, they'd be like, we need help moving chairs after the show. I would pick up a chair and move it. So the cl- And people don't understand that. A lot of times, you just want the people who work in the club to like you. Because they will for you. They'll, they'll you know. Yeah, they'll, 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 if you have a bad set, they'll, t- they'll distract the manager while you're having a bad set. You know, they'll uh, <laughs> drop a bunch of forks. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I keep dropping forks. Come on, hurry up and close it out. I can't keep dropping forks. But yeah, so I was, you know, people there liked me, and I was, you know, one of the one of the gang or whatever, and then, uh, which I wasn't doing on purpose. I just was like, I'll do. I was basically had that Shaolin uh, kung yeah, fu yeah, approach to it, like, yeah, like all the Daniel song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I was I like, you. you got to do the things you got to do. And so I was very open to that, even though I lived in the East Bay and it was a long trip, and you know. But I was like, I got to do what I got to do. I'm just happy to know that they actually care that I'm here because I'm like the club's experience that I experienced before. They didn't care, right? You know, so or didn't encourage. So I. So yeah, you started so to feel like you were part of the community. You started to feel like yeah, part yeah, of the community. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And in 99, I think I opened for, I opened for Stanhope. Okay, Doug Stanhope, nice. A nice, very nice. different, I mean, not different, but not the Stanhope he's famous for now. And okay. it's pretty really, it, I mean, a lot of comics can't this, but to have seen, then he was really a dirty joke storyteller. Okay. Like, really, he, he's, his closer was his, uh, he would take a, shake up a beer bottle and explode it on himself, like a cum shot in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> it was hilarious, and it definitely had to be the closer, because it was covered in beer. Yeah, yeah. But, like, he was he was still funny. He was killing, but he was really thought of as like ah, that headline. He's a he does well, but he never draw. And he was sort of like and and he sort of knew that about himself. But then the week that I saw him, he started talking about on the stage how his mom was going to move in with him and she was sick. And that it was stuff. I remember going, that's the good stuff right, right. there. That's he the started, real, like, like I mean that's stuff that's interesting. I think it's all humanizing funny. act. And then like you know, cut to two or three years later, it's like oh, Doug Stanhope is America's greatest satirist. You know, <laughs> like, you know. So it's like it was sort of cool to see that that's always been it it's always been 
I've always been aware that if you decide to change yourself, you can. And, and I've always been so. Even when I was like, this is even when I was telling jokes, like these aren't the jokes I want to. These aren't the jokes I want to tell in five years. These are the jokes I have right now, but I got to figure out. I got to tell these jokes to get out of these jokes. Like, so just, open it for him. Then was that when you you would consider that like an early kind of break? You know yeah, I mean? like I, yeah, just because it was like I was after I opened for him for a week, I was now an opener at the punchline. Okay, and I, and I got to open for him. So what would you say was the next the next thing that happened after that? That was kind of like a turning point. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, it was probably it wasn't until so that's like ninety nine, and then I'm trying to think. Then you're just in the mix, and you sort of get to open for a lot of people. I got to open for David Tell. I got to open. I got to work with Hedberg a bunch of times. Oh wow! I've been that bunch, but like three times. Right. I got to, so then I'm trying to think what was the. It was just really being on the scene and working, and and then finally becoming a feature in 2004. Which again, I've been ten years in. Right. That's. I mean, but from my yeah. understanding, just listening to comics talk, it takes ten years, right? Yeah, but, like, some, but they, a lot of people they take ten years. They're talking about getting a television show. <laughs> they're not talking about. Oh, I can retire in ten yeah, years, yeah. right? They're talking about not thirty minutes, not the middle guy at a comedy club. So, but, but no, I mean, but I've, I've heard them say it takes ten years to find your voice. voice. Yeah. And, and so in two thousand four, I got to feature for a head. I got to. They basically tried me out as a feature. They're like, okay, we're going to try you out as a feature. So the the deal was, the booker who doesn't work there. Where it's like you can feature on Monday, Tuesday if that goes well. You can feature on Wednesday if that goes well. You can day to day. Yeah. And then I told the people at the club, the manager called this guy Jimmy. He's like, I did Tuesday, and he and he goes, all right, see you tomorrow. I was like, well, I don't know. It depends if Melissa says I did. If you tell Melissa I did well enough, and he's like, what? And I told him the deal. He's like, oh, that's stupid. <laughs> he was like mad. Like we've never done that before. Like she just made what that sort up? of weird carriage. Is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he's like, yeah, you. And so, which again, he liked me because I had been around. Right. And I did, and so I got to work with Hedberg, and that was the next like, okay. I felt like by the time I got to do thirty minutes on stage in front of, uh, well, this two thousand four. Yeah. Okay. I was like, I'm a comedian. Nobody can say I'm not a comedian. Right. Right. right you know. Right. And for a while, I felt like I was not. A comedian. I felt like, oh, I'm opening, and I've been, a, and I've been doing this a long time, and, uh, and my friends are all going to LA, and da da da. But I'm a comedian. But I felt like, okay, now I actually, I, that was a really big like, and a lot of, and like I said, there's dudes who are featured in three years now, you know, yeah. or less, you know, because it's just the, their their path is different right. you know their, their, their level of talent is a more apparent earlier you know so for me it was like I gotta and then the big thing that happened was that 2005 so after I feature 2005 was my big introduction to the introduction industry I got I did Montreal New okay Faces, okay okay and okay. I did premium blend okay so and I did like the NBC diversity showcase but yeah Montreal and premium blend were the two big legs so, like, 2005, I go to Montreal. Nothing comes out of it. I don't get a manager. I don't get an agent. Nothing. And you go and you you go into it expecting these things. Yeah, then you go, well, you're going to get a manager. Thinking with Montreal Comedy Festivals, it used to be, like, you get a manager, an agent, and a development team. That was what back in the day. But then they lost a lot of money doing that, giving people that. And I went, and I, my first set in Montreal was not good. And, and this, was, this was the new faces? This is new faces. Okay. The second one was better, but the agent, but the, the industry's not there. So I, I felt like I went through Montreal. It was like a revolving door and I was like I didn't get anything right came back crippling depression I have to take premium blend in August and that's so I come back to my show in July and I'm like well it's all about premium blend so I was just like straight up rocky mode done yeah, done, yeah, done, yeah, done, done training done, you're running done, up the stairs yeah I'm absolutely like working on that set probably harder than I've worked any set in my life I'm sure like cutting words out talking to Dwayne Dwayne's a big like you gotta cut those words out. economy guy economy yeah, yeah. so that set wore stupid orange hat on that set because I just cut my dreadlocks off and I looked horrible now, I, um, I understand the transitional phase yeah, is hard yeah, 
that different. big orange hat on that was at the time. I was like, ooh, maybe it's my new look. And I was like, no, it's not. Uh, but I did, uh, so I, on that set, set, I do, it's 2005, I do a bit about uh, uh, how we need new black leaders. And a lot of guys, a lot of people think that this new black leader will be the senator from Illinois, Barack Obama. And so I do a Barack Obama joke in 2005, which, you know, I was a little bit ahead of the curve. <laughs> Just a tad. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the joke, and, I, and, you know, the joke was so ahead of the curve that nobody noticed it until, like, two years later <laughs> when he's running for president. Yeah. Suddenly Comedy Central, or 2008, or 2008, yeah, let me start to think. Uh, 2008, it's either January, I think it's January 2008, after, he, when did he, no, he won in 2009. Okay, yeah, so, like, 2009 was when he was inaugurated. I get a call from Comedy Central, or an email, like, or a call. Hey, come on, what are you up to? Not too much. Hey, we just, we just did this thing, and we, we're declaring that you did the very first Barack Obama show. That's tight. That's why I hope the black leader we get is Barack Obama, the black senator from Illinois. Yeah. Yeah. That dude is cool. People say he's going to be president someday. My question is, president of what? Because one day there may be a black president, but there will never be a black president named Barack Obama. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that's too black. That dude's name might as well be Blackie Blackerson. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> and if people won't vote for a white dude named John Kerry, they will definitely not vote for a black dude named Barack Obama. <laughs> Who's running for president? Um, Barack Obama. Black Osama? Mm-mm. <laughs> that is two things I don't like. Blog about it, or you know, early this is an early blog. You want to write a thing up and we'll put it on our website? Yeah. And so I was like, sure. And then the woman goes, who I'd already known at Comedy Central. She's like, uh, what else have you been working on? I was like, well, and this is all had happened in the interim. I had started. I wrote this one man show, the W. Kamau Bell Curve, any racism in about an hour, because at a certain point in 2007, so 2005, nothing happens in Montreal. I do the premium blend set, and it goes great. 2006, kind of a law, like did the San Francisco comedy competition just felt like ended up going in 2007 ended up going to uh, uh, Okinawa Japan okay. Kevin Avery who writes for yeah, yeah, Oliver yeah, yeah. And, oh he writes for Oliver yeah, yeah. I didn't know that yeah, he wrote nice. for my show writes for Oliver yeah that's nice and so we end up going to Okinawa to do shows for the troops and it's like this thing where it's like it's not it's not the USO it's like not it's a, sort of like some promoter in Okinawa who knows the dude who knows the dude here and so it's yeah. like and so they treat you well and they pay you good money but it's really Okinawa I was not a like when you go to play in Iraq, which is what I hear, places where the troops are on the front lines. The troops are just like, we're so happy yeah, you're here. Some something from home. Yeah, is here. In Okinawa. There's just a bunch of bored 18 year olds who aren't really sure what they're doing in Okinawa, right. other than getting in trouble with the local ladies, you know. Mm-hmm. And they, they would prefer magicians and strippers. Right? Right. I, I feel like we should just send those right. or comics who, or those comics that I was sort of talking about earlier. A comic who just has the sort of premises that are sort yeah, of like accessible. Yeah, and, and I was and I saw and I realized I'm not that. And I. Feel, that's what they should get. I don't feel. I don't feel like I'm better than them. I just feel right. like I'm, and I sort of came back like, is this what I do for a living? Mm-hmm. And out of that frustration, I was like, I don't. Th- I don't think I can accomplish what I want to accomplish artistically in the clubs. I'm going to. Do, I'm going to write a theater show, rent local theaters.
theater, rent a local theater. Uh, I had no, I started working. I started meeting people in the local theater scene here, so I had, I knew, I, I knew where I could go. I knew I could talk to you. Know, could Were you nervous about that at all? It just seemed like a natural. It felt like a, a, a hail mary. Right. It felt like a, I can't keep doing this. Like, right. I can't, like, right. This is, this is clearly proving itself. To, it was like maybe in 2007. I was like 2006. Not much happened after the. Yeah, it was basically that after Premium Blend in Montreal. Nothing. I got nothing to show for it. So, like, I cut my dreadlocks off. I was like, basically, like, or, yeah. No, I'd already cut my dreadlocks off. But anyway, I was just like, I gotta, I gotta get out of this. And so, 2007, I wrote the show to sort of got my computer and. I knew that I wanted uh, screens, like a show stuff, and had, had, to get, had to borrow a projector, didn't know how a projector worked, and, uh, and in 2007, like October 2007, I did the very first version of the W Come Up Bell Curve in a theater in San Francisco, and it was the whole thing, if you brought a friend of a different race, you got into two for one. That's nice. So the place was standing room only. That's tight. Really. And so I, there was two things that happened. One, local press wrote about me for like the second time, and I was like, wait, so the press here knows who I am, but they don't have a reason to write about exactly. me, and so now I've given them a reason to write about me. Because you can't just say, this comedian is doing comedy in town. You have to give him some context. You have to give him, like, oh, yeah. this thing is happening. Right. Uh, so I learned how to write press releases. I learned, I, learned, I learned how to write press releases. I learned how to, I got a graphic designer. I paid, you had to put money out yeah. in a way that as a comic, we don't put money out. We just want to show up and do the show. So I put money out. You had to produce it. You had to produce it. Yeah. And I had to help get help people. And I had to pay some people. And so I just was like, I got to do it. And first time it was sold out. It was standing room only. And it was the first a mess. time. Yeah. That's it was, awesome. Yeah, it was a, I mean, we're talking about like a theater hold. Like a theater held like 49 people. And there was like 90 people in there. That's how we did. That's exactly what we did last night. Yeah. Like, I was like, yeah, it's a sellout. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's how you got to do it sometimes. Exactly. You got you to believe it. <laughs> but act as if. For real. And so, and then by the so I did it like four times. Then by the time Comedy Central called me. I had, it was like a year later, and I'd been doing it really regularly. How regularly were you doing? I started it once a week for, for, for once a month. Week? I started, oh, okay. I started once a month for four months. So I did it four times in four months. And what I found out is the poster I paid out the posters up because it was the posters were up for four months. People were like, "You've been doing that show a lot." And I was like, "I've done it three times." Right. Uh, but the word was out. Right, right, right. right. Uh, so then I did it once a week for thirteen weeks. What did you change from show to show? Did you it have was like very complicated? Did, did you? Was there anybody else on the show? Like. Did you have guests? No. Here's what happened. At first, I started. It was it was a band opened, and then I did the show. Okay. That was what it was and then how long was the show? Like it was, it was called Any Racism in about an hour. Okay. And the first night I did it, I did like I did seventy minutes or something. Like and, that. and that was seventy minutes. Just you or me, just me. Like and then the, the, band, the band the band opened. How long did the band I would play? come on? And the band would play half hour. Okay. Nice. Then nice. I would come on. I thought I would. At the first time, I was like, I hope I can get to an hour. And the first thing I made, the first time I did, it, I think I did seventy minutes. Like it was like, oh well, that's not a problem. And then it became clear that like, okay. The the band, the band is great, but the band's got to go because I, they're actually taking time away from me. Because right. now I'm understanding. I'd never been on stage that long before because I'd been featuring and I hadn't really been headlining. You hadn't so had the opportunity to really had the opportunity. spread out, and so I was. And I had video clips, and I had, or no, back then it was just pictures and, and some word clips, you know. And it was kind of a mess. And my wife, who was in my girlfriend, was holding the projector on her lap, and it was getting hot. And it was wow. like you know, it was a whole DIY thing. And and then we we will find it, and we put the projector in the right place. And then I brought in my friend Martha Reinberg. To direct it, and so I would go to her uh, kitchen in Oakland. And I'd open my computer and be like, "Look at this crazy thing that happened." So, the, basically, what happened is that the front half of the show was very topical to what was going on in the news about race, and then the second half of the show became the stuff that I was really working on. Okay. And then, I, and that's basically now it's like the front third of the the front fifth of the show is like very topical, and then the rest of the show is now basically set. But, but this is basically the template for what will become the TV show. Yes, I basically my idea was that 
when I got frustrated when I came back from Okinawa and I was like I don't know what to do and I was like okay and something just said okay what would you be doing if you were famous what would mm. what project would you be working that's on? an excellent question I don't know I, maybe I, I don't know if I heard it somewhere but that was just like if I was famous I was like, like if you had enough resources if I, what if would I you knew create? people were going to show up no matter what I did uh, that's <laughs> awesome yeah it's like a, it's like a very I'm about to cut that out I don't know <laughs> <laughs> so you can put it on a t-shirt put that, put that on the premium edition yeah uh, and so the question was what would I do if I was famous and I was like I would have in the th- a John Stewart type of show about racism and so I would go up stay and, and so I, and so if I had a John Stewart show that means I need a screen and I need to show things and, need to, and so that became but then after I started doing it it became clear as like well I would, it's a theater thing it has to be more personal too so it became hyper personal and I would tell stories about my white my at that time my girlfriend being white and the difficulties I had with some of her family and da 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 and, and about growing up with my mom and so the whole idea for me because I'd seen a lot of one-man shows about racism, and they always set racism in the past. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, it was hard to bub it up. Or there would be some sort of like one-man show about some historical figure. Uh, Roger Gwynevich Smith always is a guy who does one-man shows about like Frederick Douglass, but he always makes them contemporary. Okay. But for the most part, everybody else, it was always set in the past. I'm like, racism's right now. Right. <laughs> so, and, and I don't want to make it look like... And also, the thing about racism shows, they would always show really stark, violent type of racism that I felt like no it's not always like that it's subtle it's subtle and and we can be mad about that too right and so I was that was very clear it's like I want to make sure it's topical so people know I'm talking about current news stories talking about my life and the subtle things that have happened the things that aren't about uh, you know somebody got lynched and then sort of invite discussion and, and so it was a very loose thing and but I really that show is responsible for whatever performer I am right now I got I got all the and also responsible for me being feeling much more free to go on stage and go I'm just going to talk about some stuff and see what happens right. and for me that's when I really write is when I go on stage and so I'm going to talk about some stuff and see what happens and totally, it out. and totally bias became really restrictive and I wasn't writing for myself as much because there was so much other stuff to do other people were writing for me and we never got uh, we never didn't we never were around each other long enough and I wasn't a famous voice before the show because think about it, Chris Rock got the Chris Rock show he'd done Bring the he'd Pain he'd already done yeah. epic yeah Bring the Pain was like oh well that's one of the greatest stand-up specials of all time oh that guy wants a show okay well I, but I was not known so the writing staff had to get to know me a lot of them and right. some of them were friends of mine but it's also many of those friends of mine had never written for anybody else before so it was a it was a whole thing and so how how does the show come together like because you, you, you're doing this um, you're doing this theater show and um yeah, so what what's, what happens between doing a thing at a show and then getting picked up? So when I get the Comedy Central call, they're like, what are you working on? Right. At the Bell oh, Curve. Right, 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 right. And then they go, oh, well, we have a theater in L.A. called the Comedy Central Theater where we showcase things, uh, and you can invite. It's free. You don't have to rent it. And, and not attendance, like, nobody has to pay to come. Basically, you have to... Uh, invite an audience, we'll send some Comedy Central execs, and you can invite whatever she you want to do, and you know, well, you can showcase the show. But you have to get it to a half hour. And I was like, oh, about 45 minutes. Because <laughs> 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 it was like, at that point, like I was doing, sometimes yeah, you, I would do 90 minutes. Right. Uh, and then Paul Stein, ended up, he was impressed by it. He ended up directing the show and helping me refine it some more, and that took it to a bunch of theater festivals. And then, eventually... This guy Chuck Sklar came to the very first show. Oh, I know that name. Chuck was the he does another executive TV stuff. Yeah, yeah, he's a he's a writer, and he worked on Chris Rock's show. He worked on Conan. He worked on Conan O'Brien's the Back to Late Night show. He worked on Lopez's show. He's a writer. 
he was he recently got a little bit of publicity because he Louis C.K. released one of his early movies on his website and Chuck was a star of that movie. Oh, okay. Uh, so Chuck, because he knew a guy named Kevin Kataoka who was a San Francisco guy who lived in L.A., said came to see the first Bell Curve, called me the next day. It's like he's like, oh, you're gonna get a TV show. I was like, whatever, dude. Stayed in touch with me and then eventually saw the show a couple more times in L.A. Knew Chris, told Chris about it. Somebody else from Jocelyn Cooper told Chris about it. One night, I, so finally I end up doing the show at the UCB Theater in New York. Do the show, it's great. I feel happy about it. I walk off stage. Chris Rock floats backstage, and that's where we met. Mm. He said he had, Chuck told him about it, and Jocelyn Cooper told him about what it. What year was this again? 2010. Okay, okay. So this is like, I've been doing the show for three years. But yeah, and so he, this is like fall of 2010. And called me a couple months later and was like, I want to help you get a TV show. I was like, okay. <laughs> and the rest is uh, canceled. Ah! Thanks. And so, I mean, okay. So let's, let's fast forward to you guys are doing five days a week. Yeah. You, I mean, uh, how long did it take for this for it to start wearing on you? You said the depression started in, like, while was, you were It was just very it. clear, or, I mean, very, very quickly, that it was like, there was a lot of pressure on this that wasn't about making good things. It was just about getting a project on screen. Right. <laughs> so, so just, just, just the production. Just it, we just got to get it on. And also, it was just, there was people who worked on the show. Everybody was super professional and worked on TV a lot. But there was also... There was still just a lot of ghosts in the machine about like, wait, what do you what do you want to do here? Like, <laughs> what kind of show do you want to make? What, what, what wait, what did you just say about gay people? <laughs> and I found some of this out later. There would be apparently there were like arguments between like people behind the scenes about the points that the show was making, okay, or wow. things about like what is I've never heard of like, and that I feel like looking back like oh that slows things down. Yeah, when, when, when everybody that's on that's, that's working on this ship doesn't know exactly where the ship is going. And also, maybe doesn't agree with where it's right, going. Right, exactly. You know, I told I think gay people have gotten a little obnoxious. You know, right. you know so, so it just makes me in a position of like, we're trying to get the rock up the hill. You're right. And some people are like, hold on, let's talk about this. You know, so. <laughs> but, but wait a minute, yeah. <laughs> you took your hand off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. it just, I think it was just, you know, I would imagine if you get a job on The Daily Show and you go, you can have different philosophical and, and political points of view, but shut the fuck yeah. up. <laughs> right. There's very little room for discussion yeah, in terms just, of the final just, unless points. it's a creative, unless it's like I think this can be, be funnier. Uh, my right. political viewpoint can make this better, right? But not like I disagree with this. And we got to stop and talk. Yeah, yeah. No. And there was some. I didn't see all of it, but there was definitely some. Well, of that. You couldn't and have seen all of it. I couldn't have seen all of it. Yeah. So I think that there was just we were. I, you know, we, it was an ambitious thing we were trying to do that occasionally was made less ambition ambitious by time. How many episodes did you guys produce? It's 130 or something. Like it was. I mean, over because it was over a short period of time, but it was. I was. I can't. I, it may not have been 130. I, no, because I think it was the full whole run. I don't. It was somewhere in the, the 60s. Something. I mean, I don't remember. It was. I, for me, it's one. We made one. We so, made so, one over. So <laughs> <laughs> we started in September. The show was canceled in, uh, in November, right before Thanksgiving. We made one long. Episode. So I mean, so how do, how do they tell you that kind? 
kind of news? Like, how do they tell you the, the uh, it's canceled? Uh, Deadline Hollywood posted a blog. Oh my God! So the, the internet knows before you. The internet said this show's oh. about to be canceled, God, and I didn't even know that sucks. it had said that. I got a call from Chris saying, "Hey man, you got to believe. The, don't believe the bad stuff. Don't believe the good stuff. Don't believe anything, man. It's all right. We'll figure it out." It's Chris Rock. Chris Rock. Okay. Like, so they're communicating about with him. Like, well, no, he F- saw Deadline Hollywood. Oh, okay. He calls okay. me. I hadn't seen it, and then I go, and then I walk back to my office and go, "Hey, apparently there's some article on Deadline Hollywood." I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> and I didn't know about it because my head was like, and right, people, you were working. And he was like, and I remember he was like, are people afraid of you? And I was like, and I didn't say it. I was like, I think people are trying to be nice. Like, yeah. trying, they know that I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, trying to dig, as I dig water uh, on the podcast. But they thought, they see me like trying to bail the water out of this ship, and they're trying to bail, and they just don't want to slow me down. And they, they could tell that it was weighing on me. Right. So, the execs at that point, we they were like, oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 we're not. That's, and then, you know, which what are they going to say? Oops, we got scooped by Deadline Hollywood. And so then, like, I don't know, two weeks later, like, basically, I knew, I was like, uh, there's a phone call scheduled with the network in two days. And I was like, why has it got to be two days? Can't it be right now? <laughs> and uh, they called that was it. They were very, John Langroff was very polite about it. And he said nice things about the show, but it was taking on too much water. And I said, thanks, I appreciate it. And then we still had two more shows to take. Because <laughs> he said, basically, they wanted to give us a chance. They said, we wanted to let you tell you before the show was over in case you want to do something special for the for the, for the the send-off. And I was like, in my mind, and people were talking about what we're going to do special. I was like, I don't know. Finish making these two shows. <laughs> it's not like it had been easy up until that point. Right. Now we got to make it special. Right. Like, so I, every idea I had was, why don't we get a band to come in here and play for twenty five minutes? <laughs> like I tried to get Living Color right. out of town. I do like I was a special. Like, tried yeah. to get, yeah. Like I just we we still have to make these shows no matter whether they're special or not. So and then what is what is what is your immediate next move after that? Well, the great thing. Well, first of all, after the show was. Canceled or now? Uh, after the show was canceled. You know, it was like we had already, me and my family had already scheduled a vacation, so we knew we were going to, and, and it was right before Thanksgiving, so we just sort of went on vacation as if, and went about our lives, and, and like sort of like had time to think about it, but then you come back from vacation, you're like, I don't know what I thought about, like, you know, so. Book a tour, I did a tour in the spring of a bunch of cities, and that was that went well, and. I mean, how are you feeling while you're doing this tour? I mean, you... I was having to be on stage and talk to people. I mean, that's the best place for me. Yeah, I feel like, kinda, you, you were so like it's the, and also get out people, of the production people hole. People were excited about seeing me. There was this whole sense of, of sadness about the cancels of the show that sort of like was feeding. Like people were like, "We're so happy you're here. I'm so happy," you know. So it was like, "Oh, thank God!" It's like it was like it's like. But then I was working on new bits, and I very quickly was like, "So I want to do a comedy special because I feel like I haven't done comedy for a while." So that became the plan, and that's what we're working on now. Okay. To try to. I'm actually going to LA on Tuesday to showcase my hour for the people in show business. Nice. But uh, yeah, but it was just also hard. We're still living in New York. We're paying way too, too much, much rent now because we were paying. I have a television show rent. Now right. Exactly. Rent. Exactly. And the difference my in wife income. Pregnant, and right. it's just like, which was great, but it was just this thing where I was like. I don't feel at home enough in New York to go out and try new, to try new, like I don't feel like, I don't have that thing in New York where I'm like, I'm going to go work on my new hour. I know that exists, but I just couldn't, New York only was a place to do totally bias. Right. It was not a place, I hadn't developed enough relationships, and I knew Wyatt, and I knew Hannibal, but it was just like, it just became harder and harder to sort of like, to sort of like, oh, I'll just, oh, now I just live in New York now. Right. Like, no, I don't. My wife got friends like, let's go back to the Bay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And immediately I got out here, it was like, I booked a bunch of shows at this basement of a video 
video store called the Senate Cave, and it's 35 seats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing two shows every Saturday night, and it's sold out, and I'm working on new bits. It's just like. You're just back in the groove of what you were doing. Yeah, like yeah. figuring out the thing. And also, but now being able to go to LA and do things, yeah. you know, going on the road and doing a huge tour. So the show gave me the gave me a huge bump in my career, which I'm happy about. But it's actually making me now able to like live the lifestyle I wanted to live before. Right. Well, how can people find out what's next? What's the best way for them to keep keep in tune with uh, what's going on in your world? You know, I mean, it's funny. It's like probably you know the, the regular. I mean, I'm I'm an active Twitterer. Like okay. Yourself, so I, <laughs> if you follow me on Twitter, sometimes too much. You'd be like, that's too many things. I that's too many tweets about Scottish independence. Uh, but I'd say, but Twitter and Facebook, obviously. But then my website, wkamalbell.com. Okay. You know, first you gotta learn how to spell wkamalbell. We'll <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. you know, you can get it wrong a couple and, times. Yeah, it's all right. And actually, I mean, it's funny. The, it's funny. It sounds old school now. Like I have a mailing list, and I once a month I send out pretty. Like I try to make them funny and interesting, yeah, but yeah, also yeah. here's what's going on, and I share stuff about other things that people are doing that I like. How do you collect your your addresses for your mailings? Just on the site, people sign up. Or? There's a, on the site, and every now and again on Twitter, which I find works, I'll go, hey, because sometimes people go, I didn't know you were doing a thing. Right. And I will then announce on Twitter or Facebook, hey, if you don't know what I'm doing, you need to do this. And it's like, you'll get 50 people to sign up like that right. just by saying on Twitter, hey, thousands of people who are following me, why don't you actually really pay attention if you come over here? So, you know what? I'm going to do that today. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny. You have those people on Twitter, and some of those people actually want to hear from you more often. Yeah. And in a more you know, pro- and, it, and I get really frustrated because those people will be like, hey, Mike, when you come into San Francisco? <laughs> hey, I somebody, just, I was there last night. <laughs> yeah, well, that just happened to me. Somebody, I was just released all my tour dates. So it was like, how come not Sacramento? Because I was there Friday. <laughs> and right, and then I'll always be like, here's my mailing list. Right. And that person will go like, and then they'll go sign up. So I find just reminding people on Facebook and Twitter that there is a thing called a mailing list. And you're not actually getting all the information here. Or to, or you may turn off your computer at the time I announce things. Right. That, 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 that gets people like, yeah, yesterday I just didn't. I got 50 people to sign up, which is which is not a lot of people, but it's also a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> it's also, like, it's, well, also good, it's 50 more people who will know what I'm doing. Well, we've talked for like an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. Sorry and, about uh, that. We finally got to the social media tip. Yeah, 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 yeah. I that's appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how this episode's going to be labeled, W. Bell's social media <laughs> tips. <laughs> Wait a while. He takes a while to get to it. He's, he's pretty long-winded. <laughs> So that was my talk with Kamal Bell. It was awesome. I appreciate him being on the show. And thank you for listening to Secret Skin. And here we are at the end of the show. So you know what that means. An unreleased open mic eagle tune from me to you. Uh, thank you, listeners. Thanks for um, following us along so far. This is episode 11. Get into a little bit of a groove. Always open to your feedback. Send... Um, messages negative positive or otherwise to on me booking at gmail.com stay in touch let me know what you're thinking what you're feeling and as far as unreleased song goes as far as an unreleased song goes here's one i'm sure you've never heard what are you guys gonna do after rap do you believe in life after rap what are you guys gonna do after rap do you believe in life after rap what are you guys gonna do after rap do you believe in life after rap what are you guys gonna do after rap? Do you believe in life after rap? What are you guys gonna do after rap? Do you believe in life after rap? No. What are you guys gonna do after rap? Do you believe in life after rap? No. What are you guys gonna do after rap? Do you believe in life after rap? No. What are you guys gonna do after rap? Do you believe in life after rap? No. What are you guys gonna do after rap? Do you believe in life after rap? 
What are you guys gonna do after rap? Do you believe in life after rap?